The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. So we've heard a lot about troubles and the difficulty of dealing with the troubles of life, not only already in this service, but certainly if you got the newspaper this morning, it's filled with troubles all around the world. And the services this month have been very much focused on troubles. Daniel Cantor, who was our first preacher at the beginning of the month, was talking about reproductive health and the extraordinary ministry that he and his congregation have been doing for a very long time to, first of all, accompany women who went to abortion clinics. He and other clergy would be there with them and provide some kind of spiritual, religious um, support. And now, since abortions are not legal in, in Texas, um, they help them go to other states and get what they need if they cannot and do not want to bring their pregnancy to term. It was um, an amazing um, witness to what that Unitarian congregation in Dallas is doing. Um, but there was a lot of trouble in that service. It was trouble which we've heard a lot about and were concerned about. And then John Buren spoke about the dispossession of indigenous people on Indigenous Peoples Day. And um, again, it was a hard sermon, as he said it would be, listening to how we as Unitarians in the past have been implicated in the dispossession of people and the awful, awful treatment of people which continues to shadow our lives today. And then Carmen Barsodi and Sam Dennison preached last Sunday and spoke of the weariness, the weariness that they feel facing the troubles and the troubled people in the Tenderloin. And just the ongoing, ongoing, ongoingness of the troubles in our world was what led me to think this Sunday I would like to talk a little bit about troubles and how I have dealt with them and do deal with them. And um, I realized that I was very weary, very, very weary about learning about troubles. And I'm sure you are too. It's too much, it's overwhelming, and we don't know what to do about it. So I turn to the prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr. And this will be something that will be like a leitmotif through what I'm saying. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can change. I'm sorry. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. How, how does one find serenity to accept the things we cannot change? Well, I'm going to begin with a story, and hence the wonderful cover to our order of service that Jonathan found for us, this adorable looking raccoon. 
Well, the adorable raccoons were living in the pre-earthquake house we bought in 1997. They were a family of them living in the attic. And we, like many newcomers, wanted them to move. So after the first year we were there, we had to do extensive work to the house. We had to have a new roof put on, and we thought, well, you know, taking the roof off and putting a new roof on, surely they're not going to stay in the attic. Well, they went away for a little while, but they came back. And so Peter, my husband, had the idea that he could fill the 18-inch gap between us and the house to our south, which is where they climbed up the drain pipe, with wire. So he put miles and miles of wire, stuffed it in there. Unfortunately, that only helped the raccoons get up to the attic. They're very, very agile, and this was just wonderful for them. It was a jungle gym. And then he went through a whole lot of things, and it was largely Peter who was the one who was dealing with them. A water gun, but that didn't really work very well, and various other things. And we have a little um, fountain in our garden. It's kind of like a mill wheel. Our, the son and daughter-in-law gave it to us when we moved in. And of course, the raccoons loved that, and they fiddled around in that and pulled it apart. So we really became quite desperate. There were so many raccoons in our garden every night. And in fact, they were breeding under our lovely neighbor's porch. porch. So we started um, to hire somebody to come and trap them. That was, first of all, very expensive and didn't really make much difference. They seemed to keep coming. And I, at that point, was really, really kind of embattled. And there's a bit of a poem by Stanley Kunitz I want to share with you because it's pretty well how I felt about raccoons. Raccoons, I can hear them confabulating on the porch, half churring, half growling, bubbling to a manic hoot that curdles the night air. Something out there appalls. On the back door screen, a heavy fur piece hangs, spread-eagled, breathing hard, hooked by prehensile fingers with its pointed snout pointing in and the dark agates of its bandit eyes furiously blazing. Behind, where shadows deepen, burly forms lumber from side to side like diminished bears in a flat-footed shuffle. They watch me unafraid. I know they'll never leave. They've come to take possession. So I was in a really bad state. I was at war with these raccoons who actually had lived there before we did. And I was, I was recommended a book, a friend recommended a book called Staying with the Trouble by Donna Haraway, who is Distinguished Professor Emerita in the History of Consciousness at UC Santa Cruz. And I read this book, which is not an easy book to read. She coins a lot of words. Um, but it is about living with others, particularly other species. How do we live together? How do we enter into kind of a dance with them? How do we make compromises? How do we change the way we do things? And that book profoundly affected me. I, I really knew that I needed to change and that there was something that I needed to do and be differently. So, 
we have now, to some extent, learned to live with the trouble. We have a blue baby bath over the fountain with two cinder blocks on it. Every night I go out and put the baby bath on the fountain and the two cinder blocks, and every morning I pick up the cinder blocks, take the baby bath back, and um, the fountain works again. And every morning I go out into the garden to do this, and I see that the turf has been turned up all around. Our lawn is too grand a word, but it's grass. And every morning I go back and turn down the grass and tramp it down and hope it will live. So we're learning to live with the raccoons. It's not perfect, but they come in our garden, they do what they do. I come in the garden in the morning and repair what they've broken. And, and we're managing, we're managing. But the Naibua prayer has more to it than granting me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, as Daniel alluded to in his reflection. Sometimes that's not enough. Because Naibua also asks for the courage to change the things I can. Fifty-eight years ago, I was in New York Hospital and my firstborn child was in the premature baby ward and I had to go up and visit him every day for several weeks while he was growing a little bit stronger and was able to be taken out and back home again. And as I sat in that premature baby ward, I noticed a little boy about six months old in a crib at the far end of the room. And he was unusual because he was big, looked healthy, was up on his hands and knees, and he was banging his head against the crib bars. Bang, bang, bang. And I had no idea why he was there or what he was doing, and I was profoundly upset by that. And I asked the nurses, why is he here? And they said, well, his mother was African-American and Catholic, and she said that he could be adopted by a Catholic black family, and we haven't been able to find one who wanted to adopt. And banging his head against the bars of the crib, he is slowly going mad. We, each nurse in turn, holds him and walks around with him and tries to relate to him. But there is no one person against whom he can define himself. There's no sense of who he is, and he's slowly going mad. I never forgot that baby. So six years later, after the birth of our second child, we adopted our first ado adoption of another six-month-old six baby. And over the years, we adopted three more. It didn't change the system. It didn't prevent unwanted babies. But we did change the lives, not only of the four children we adopted, but all our family, hugely benefiting us, hugely enriching us, and for this, I am forever grateful. But when Amy Comey Barrett said 
of children who are born to women who cannot look after them or do not want to look after them, oh, they can easily be adopted. I was absolutely infuriated. It is not easy to be adopted. First of all, there are too many children waiting for adoption. They're waiting in foster and group homes, which are way inadequate. Some of them are positively destructive. Ignoring the child, just neglecting the child would be the better of the things that might happen to them. They're frequently abused. A group home or a foster home is not the answer. And then if you are adopted into the most loving, stable, wanting you family, there inevitably will be questions of, why did my birth mother give me up? What's wrong with me? And there's nothing that I, as an adoptive parent, can say to my child that will assuage those questions. Sometimes, as they grow older, the child who's been adopted will try to find their birth parent, and sometimes that works, and it's a happy reunion, and there's a new relationship that can develop. But oftentimes, it's not. And oftentimes, it's a disappointment. And most of them probably don't, don't ever seek their birth parent. One of the things we've found is that for our adopted children, there's no medical history. They don't know what might be a problem for them. They don't know what to look for. They don't know what happened in the past. And they never will hear somebody say, oh, you look just like your grandmother. Or, you know, your father had a lovely voice too. That's something they won't be able to hear. The stories are missing from their lives. The medical history is missing from their lives, even if they're lucky enough to find a home that really wants them, cares for them, loves them, feels themselves incredibly lucky to have these children join their family. So that's a trouble that we can do a little bit about maybe, but not solve. Not yet, not now. At least I can't. And then Naibur goes on. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can, change the things, I'm sorry, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So where does one find that wisdom? I think it's in community. I think it's particularly in religious community. As Ramdas said, we make the effort to see the beloved in everyone and through everyone, including the earth. And don't we say every Sunday, promise each other, love is the spirit of this church? It's being in congregation that we have the opportunity to grow. We gain wider horizons, deepening connections with more and different people, and the more differences, the better. Because then we can begin to imagine what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, to experience what they've experienced. And they can teach us. You teach me. You have taught me for years and years. I've learned so much from this congregation, which has changed me, which has 
offered new horizons of possibility, which has curbed some of the things that were not working so well for me or anyone else. It's so important to be in community, to get to know many different people, to support each other in this very troubling world where we're called to accept the things that we cannot change, to change the things we can. And so I end by a prayer that in this church we may encourage each other to change the things we can, perhaps lessening the troubles for some. I pray that we learn to accept the things we cannot change and do so graciously with humor, playfulness, creativity. And I pray that we support one another in living with all the many troubles in the world, in our own lives, and that we do this in love. So may it be. Amen. I am a pessimist. I prefer to think realist, but I do easily get caught up in stress, frustration, and sometimes obsession about the many bad things in the world, big and small. Climate change, our increasingly undemocratic political system, and also smaller and more personal things, like wishing I had not sprained my ankle 10 years ago because it seems like that's just going to hurt a little bit for the rest of my life. For whatever reason, the stickiest anxieties are often the ones that I can do the least about. I can't actually go back and unsprain an ankle. And I can only be a small piece of the solution towards climate change and a just democracy. So instead, sometimes I just spin in thoughts of what if, of why couldn't the world be different or someone have done something differently so that we wouldn't face these problems today. In college, I took an existentialist philosophy course. The concept that stuck the most for me was Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of amor fati, or love of fate. First, I will disclaim that this is my pop understanding of one professor's take on a very complicated concept. Love of fate, as I learned it, is kind of like the butterfly effect, that idea that a butterfly flapping its wings halfway across the world sets off a subtle chain reaction, ultimately forming a large storm. As I learned it, love of fate basically says you can't have the good without the bad. You can wish that American democracy was more fair or that your best friend wasn't always late when you hang out. 
But you're actually wishing for an entirely different America and an entirely different best friend. You can't change just that one quality. In fact, you're wishing not just for a different best friend or America, but an entirely different world where everything is different uh, because it's all kind of connected. Love of Fate basically posits that everything you know is a package so deeply intertwined that if you changed one little piece, dominoes would fall and the whole world would change too. You can choose to love and affirm the fate that you've been given or not, but only in its totality. So if you love your family or your home or the new Taylor Swift album or anything else, then saying that you wished in a different world, a world lacking some sorrow or frustration, is also wishing away those things, wishing for them to be different in ways that you can't imagine. And some people might be in such despair and misfortune that they would want to wish away their fate entirely and roll the dice on a different lot in life. But I think most of us would find ourselves very reluctant to do that. I wouldn't say that I fully ascribe to this belief. And taken too literally, I think it can be disempowering and fatalistic. While the past can't be changed, in the future, we can build a world that keeps what's good and eradicates bad things that are within human control, such as homelessness and oppressive governments. But when I find myself really spiraling, despairing at the enormity of the problems of the world, wishing for something to be different in the past, sometimes remembering Amor Fati can break me out of that thought loop. Love my fate. Am I glad to be here overall? Am I glad to be who I am? As a strict yes or no question, no yes but allowed. Yes, I am. So I have to accept the challenges and, sorrow and sorrows that come with that and do my best to make them better going forward. Meanwhile, I try not to lose sight of my good fortunes or to uselessly dwell on sorrows that are beyond my control. <laughs>